You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. You can be seated and uh, so glad you've joined us. This morning, if you want to be getting out your Bibles, you'll be opening up to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, this is probably the longest uh, number, the most number of Sundays we've ever spent on just chapter 1 of a book. But that's because Colossians is so dense, and I've enjoyed it so much. I hope you have as well. Back in the 2004 Olympics, there was a, a shooter by the name of Matt Emmons. He was the best marksman in the whole world, and everyone expected him to win gold, and he looked like he was going to win gold as he was competing uh, in the rifle shooting competition. In fact, y'all, he was so good, going into the last round, he had a commanding lead, and he was using a borrowed rifle. The day of the competition, he figured out something was wrong with his rifle, so he just borrowed someone else's, and he's blowing everyone else away. And he gets down to the last shot, and again, he's got a commanding lead. He just needs a very average shot is all he needs. It's like Michael Jordan needs to make a layup to win the championship. That's all that he needs. He, he could do this in, the, in his sleep. Gold medal's his. I mean, the fat lady hasn't sung yet, but she's opening her mouth. She's about to sing. This is where we are. So he raises up, and he shoots the last shot, and it's a great shot. He nailed the target. But he went from guaranteed gold, first place in the bank, to eighth place in no medals. How could this be? He fired a cross shot. See, in these competitions, you got these, they're all, uh, all these shooters in a line, and so across from them, there's a line of targets, and as he went and lowered his rifle, he did it just to the side, and he made a great shot on the wrong target. You know, we can do the same thing with our lives. We can live our whole lives hitting a bullseye, doing a great job on the wrong target. You can do a great job on the wrong vision for your life. Have you ever stopped and thought about what's the target of your life? What's your vision for your life? What are you aiming at for your life? Most of, it, it's, most of us, it's some form of the American dream. You know, I want good family, good kids, have a good retirement, travel, be happy, some version of happy, healthy, and wealthy, hopefully just a little bit. But what if, what if that is not God's target for your life? See, God, he does. He has a vision for your life. He has a target for your life. And by the time we finish this morning, by the time we get done looking at this passage, you're going to know what the target for your life is. You are going to know why you were put here on earth. But there will be surprises. Because what Paul is going to describe here as the target for his life, y'all, it is completely counterintuitive to us. It is not anything that any of us would ever pick on our own. But here, here's how I would summarize it, and here's our big idea for the morning. And I think this will uh, become apparent as we look at the passage. Here's our big idea. Joy. Joy is from God to me for you. From God to me for you. That is where joy comes from. So let's read Colossians 1. We'll start in verse 24 and go through 29. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God has chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So we're going to break this passage up really into two sections. The first, we're going to see Paul's vision, the target he's aiming his life at. The second section is going to be Paul's action. This is how he goes about achieving his vision for his life. So let's start with Paul's vision for his life. In verse 24, he starts with two phrases that seem absolutely strange. In fact, they ought to, you ought to read this and you ought to pause and ask, is that really true? Because that doesn't sound, that sounds like it might not be true. The first one is this. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I find joy in my life through suffering. Now, in our culture, most of us would define happiness as the complete absence of suffering. You know, we, we're trying to get as far away from suffering as humanly possible. That's most of our target. So most of us would say, you know, Go, go Brookshire after church and poll the average person. They'd say, you know, the way to happiness is we need to add things like convenience, things like comfort, maybe some excitement, maybe some, some pleasure. But we need to subtract suffering and try to get that number down to zero. And if we can do that, maybe then I'll be happy. But the Bible says suffering is essential to Christian joy. I wish it was just here. It's not. It's all over the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 1, he says, it has been granted to me to suffer. It was a gift given to me to suffer. I'm, I'm engaged in the same conflict as Jesus Christ, and that's a gift. In Romans 5, 3, he rejoices in his suffering because he says this suffering, it produces all kinds of wonderful fruit in my life. Philippians 3, 10, he says that sharing in Jesus' suffering is the great purpose for his life. See, everyone in life, everyone experiences suffering, but with Christians, it's a little bit different. So Christians have a different, different relationship with suffering than anyone else. We ought to value it. We, we ought to anticipate its intended effects. Suffering becomes a cause of rejoicing in our life. That's what the Bible says. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds clinically insane to me. I mean, as I look and I examine my life and I read that, I, I found myself thinking, wait a minute, is that true? Or, or, or is that just religious speak? You know, that, that he's saying and it sounds good, it sounds noble, but no one can actually live that way. And so I spent this week, and I want, to, I want you to join me in this journey to kind of become like little Sherlock Holmes, to investigate what Paul's saying here and if it's true and, and what exactly he means here because it is so contrary to how I naturally want to live my life. So let's explore a little more. Next part's easy to miss, but it's essential. It's essential to what he's saying. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. This is so important, men and women. This is so important. Paul isn't finding joy in any and all sufferings. No, no, no. He's finding joy in a specific type of suffering. 
Or you could say uh, suffering for a specific purpose. I think most of us, we understand a little suffering for a good cause. We understand discipline, don't we? I mean, we suffer now to gain something for ourselves later. And so I don't buy everything I want to today so that I can save up and I can buy something even better tomorrow. I don't Take a day off work today so that I can take a whole vacation tomorrow. I eat my broccoli today so that I can have a healthy, happy life tomorrow. We get that. That makes sense. But you don't need Jesus for that. That's not necessarily what Paul is talking about here. I mean, listen, there's people, there's a lot of people on Instagram, on the gram, that are suffering and being way more disciplined than I'll ever be just so they can be rich and powerful. And they, they understand that. You know, we also tend to naturally understand even spiritual discipline. So I pray, I go to church, I read the Bible, I serve, and I'm willing to do things so that I grow. There, there's a benefit for me there. But you know what? Every religion does that. Listen, there, there are Buddhists and Hindus who practice the most extreme levels of denial and self-inflicted suffering, and they do it because they think it takes them to a higher spiritual plane. There, there's a spiritual benefit there. That's the context Paul is preaching into. So they had this kind of early Gnostic heresy going on in Colossae. And every form of Gnosticism works the same way. We got it all over our culture. It, it works like rungs on a ladder. And, and so the way you climb the ladder is through some sort of suffering, some sort of self-denial. But you go through that, and the benefit is it takes you to the, that next rung. It takes you a little higher and higher. And lots of people live that way. I think Paul would say... That's hitting a bullseye on the wrong target. He'd say, great job at the wrong vision. And it's the wrong target because it is completely self-centered. See, we're really good, naturally, all of us, we are really good at being self-centered in every way, shape, and form. And we can even be spiritually self-centered, can't we? I mean, we're willing to suffer, but usually because... It's self-centered suffering. There's a benefit for me. But Paul is talking about a different kind of suffering that brings rejoicing. It's not self-centered suffering. It is servant suffering. I'm suffering for you. I'm experiencing suffering for your good. It's the type of suffering we celebrate tomorrow on Memorial Day. Where there are many who died. And there are many more who lived but suffered immensely for our good, and we get the benefit of that. And so what Paul is saying here, as we investigate, what, what could he possibly mean? Paul is saying, there's something about the fact that my suffering isn't for my own gain that causes it to spring up joy in my life. In fact, he says, this servant suffering, it's an essential ingredient in joy. See, he doesn't say, I rejoice despite the suffering or uh, even though I'm suffering, he says, I don't get joy without this servant suffering. So then I ask, okay, well, what is it about this type of servant suffering that actually brings joy? And that brings us to the second phrase he starts this passage with. And it sounds crazy. He says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now that sounds uncomfortable to say. Because we don't like to think of Christ lacking in any way. We have to understand he's not at all talking about the cross. The atonement is not included here. On the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. We cannot add anything to the cross. Nothing more is required from me for God's satisfaction, for my own redemption. 
We have to look at this word he's using here, affliction. This word is used a lot. It's used 45 times in the New Testament. And all those times, it's never used for the cross. It's never used for Jesus' work on the cross. You know how it's used? For things like imprisonment, persecution. It's used of Joshua being sold by his brothers and falsely imprisoned. It's used for the public shaming of the saints. It's the sufferings God's people experience on earth for the sake of the gospel. That's what it is. So not any and all types of affliction. He has a particular type in mind here. And so when he talks about being filled up with what's lacking in Christ's affliction, here's, here's what I think he means. Those afflictions are what remains to be endured by the body of Christ until Jesus returns. That's what's still lacking. That's what's left undone for now. We can see this even in his use of the word now in, in verse 26. He says, this has now been revealed to the saints. So when he says now, he's not talking about like 3.30 on a Tuesday right now. He's talking about ages. He's talking about periods of time. And so this now, the now that we live in, is the age between his resurrection and his return. That's the now that we live in, that Paul lived in too, that the church exists in. And in this now, the church has received its target, its mission, its vision, the Great Commission. So before Jesus ascended, he said to the church, the church will continue his mission that Jesus started. It's a continuation. It's left undone. You see that? Here's the part we miss, though. The part we often miss is that the church receives not only Jesus' mission, but also his method. And that's what Paul is getting at here. In fact, Paul uses the same words for our life that he, we saw last week him use for Jesus' life. So he uses the word present in verse 28. He says, okay, my goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. That's the same word. Exact same word from verse 22 that described Jesus' goal. Everything Jesus did, he said, was to present you before the Father, holy, blameless, above reproach. So the target, goal, aim for your life is the same as Jesus Christ, to present. Now, how did Jesus do that? We saw last week, back up one verse, verse 21. Jesus, the way he went about presenting us to the Father was through the suffering and death of his body. That was the method. So Jesus poured out his life to bring others to him. This is why Isaiah, all throughout the book of Isaiah, Jesus is called the suffering servant. And that was the period, the age before his resurrection. But in the now, after his ascension, right now, the same method and the same mission continue through us. So in a sense, men and women, Jesus has ascended but he left his body, in a sense, he left his body here. So who's his body? Well, Paul tells us in verse 24, the church, that is Jesus' body on earth until he returns. And so in the now, Jesus is still suffering in his body, but this time it's through the church. And he's doing it still to present people to God. We practice Servant suffering as a continuation of the work of the suffering servant. That's what Paul's telling us here. That's what Paul is finding great joy in here. Paul's saying, listen, you, you thought it was joy-inducing to be the one presented before the Father? Yeah, and yes, absolutely it is. But it gets even better. Because you get to be a part of doing the presenting 
with others. There's no joy like that. In the now, when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's still Jesus doing the presenting, but he's doing it through you. And if you have ever experienced that, listen, you know the joy that Paul is talking about, don't you? I mean, there's no greater joy and there's no affliction you would not be willing to endure to see that happen. So you see, we're, we're beginning to form a picture of how we can rejoice in our sufferings, aren't we? The type of sufferings he rejoices in are servant sufferings in the name of the suffering servant. That is the target that Paul has aimed his life at. And that's why he identifies himself as a steward. In verse 25, so Paul gives his job title. He says, I'm a minister of the gospel. And as a minister, the target, the goal, he says, is to make Christ fully known. And by the way, as he writes this, he's suffering for it, isn't he? I mean, he's in prison. He's lost all his prestige and all his reputation. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. You see how this works? But he's not mad about it. He's rejoicing over it. And he then uses a key word for every believer. Key word. You can't follow Christ without this word. Stewardship. This is so big. The vision of his life, it's not from him and it's not for him. He's just a steward of it. You see, steward, a steward wouldn't be real popular in our culture because a, a steward is not an owner. The steward's not the big wig decision maker. A steward is not the master and the commander of his own ship. This is the, the target if it's one that I pick, that I set up, that I control, that's not joy-inducing. That's the wrong target. The target that is joy-inducing in my heart is the one that's not from me and it's not for me. And then he gives the best definition of stewardship you'll ever read right there in the Scriptures. Here, here's what stewardship is from a Christian. It's from God to me for you. From God to me for you. That brings joy. That's a vision for your life right there. The most joyful person you will ever meet is the one who sees themselves as a steward, is the one whose whole vision for their life is from God to me for you. And you have to understand, though, that vision will inherently bring suffering because it means dying to yourself. And the Bible describes that dying to yourself as picking up a cross, and crosses aren't pleasant. Death is never pleasant. Dying to yourself will be painful. All Paul's saying here is it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And next Paul shows us why it's worth it. So in verse 26, he uses the word mystery. He uses it in Ephesians as well. Mystery is something that was hidden, he says, but it's now revealed to us. So understand what this mystery is. This mystery is not... It's not a secret handshake, some secret information, some riddle. you got to be really smart to figure out. No, no, no. It's, it's only a mystery in the sense that it was previously hidden. But now it's revealed. So before it was a mystery, but now it's plain. Y'all, it's on the bottom shelf. It is clear and available and obvious to all of us now. But it wasn't always that way. Paul says there, there were many who longed to see how God would redeem his people. 1 Peter 1 says even angels long to look into these things that Paul gets to participate in. Go read Hebrews 11 this way. He gives a long list of people who gave their life for this. And it says they never got to see it. They died in faith. They didn't, they didn't get to see it like we do. 
See, the Old Testament, it's filled with all kind of unbelievable promises, promises that they had no idea how this would work. Promises like God's presence will be throughout the earth. Well, to them, God's presence was in the tabernacle. And so they, how's that going to work? Or is the tabernacle going to go on a road show? Everybody takes a field trip here. How does this work? He promised a king with an eternal throne that would have no end. And they look around and say, well, everybody eventually dies. And then there's a war and the, that monarchy gets overthrown. How, how? How is this even possible? Well, in the now where we live, it's been revealed. We know. And what has been revealed? Yeah, it's more jaw-dropping, unbelievable, and I would say joy-inducing than anything they could have ever imagined. It's Christ in you. Christ in you. Union for every person here with God himself. He says that is our only hope of glory. Now, glory, glory was a big deal. You may remember in the Old Testament, Moses had to cower and hide behind a rock because if he didn't, God's glory would have crushed him. It would have destroyed him. And Paul is saying the glory of God has gone from something that will destroy you to living inside you because of Jesus Christ. And because Christ is in us, that's how his glory fills the earth. Little pieces of God's glory walking around everywhere. And you get to see it and you get to be a part of it. That's where the joy comes from. What was a mystery, what others long to see, I get to participate in. It's right here in front of me and it is freely available. Not only do I get to be a beneficiary of it, I get to be his body that accomplishes it. And that's worth suffering for. Yeah, it's going to cost me, but you know what, y'all? It's like paying a dollar for the, the Powerball lottery ticket. Yeah, it cost me a little something, but what I get out of it is way, way better. So let's pause and summarize here so far. You know, lo- lots of people hit a bullseye on the wrong target for their life. They suffered, they've sacrificed for it, but then they hit the bullseye, and you know what they say? Where's all the joy? This isn't fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. And all they end up finding is disappointment. Paul is saying the only target for your life that will bring joy looks like this. From God to me for you. Now, y'all have some next level graphic design there. It's, it's amazing what Microsoft Paint, you can do Microsoft Paint these days. You want to aim your life at something that will bring you joy, that will give you a fulfilling life? There it is. From God to me for you. It's from God, it's his mystery, it's his glory. It's to me, it is Christ in me. But it's for you, to present everyone mature in Christ, make him known through servant suffering. That's the target of a steward. How do we live like that? How do we accomplish that? How do we hit that target? Well, Paul tells us. This next section, it's Paul's action. Here's how I hit my target. He says, him we proclaim. Now, in the Greek sentence, that sentence structure, him is the primary position. Here's what that means. That means it's, a, it's all about him, not about you. It's not about the proclaimer. It's not about what a good job the proclaimer is doing. It is about him. The content is king of this message. That word proclaim, it means to announce. He's saying my life is a series of announcements about Jesus Christ. Now, I know where you sit, it's easy to say, 
Well, sure, because he's Paul. I mean, that's Paul. You know, he's, he was like spiritual Superman. And he went around, he could do all that. I'm no Paul. I, I, I can't do that. But notice the plural. He, said, he doesn't say him I proclaim. He says him we proclaim. It's the mission of the whole church. And I want you to notice how many people in this short book are included in the we. So we know some of the specifics who the we are because Paul talks about them. So Colossians is only 95 verses. In those 95 verses, there's Paul, Timothy, Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Nympha, and Archippus. That is a full dozen people in 95 verses. So that's the idea that sometimes, you know, it's easy to have that, that Paul, he's some sort of Superman, you know, who spread the church while everyone else just consumed Paul's ministry. That's a myth. The church spread through each and every person practicing servant suffering. They all did this. He says they do it through warning and teaching with all, all wisdom. There, he is talking about God's word. He says, you know, I, I don't find joy in people agreeing with me, you know, it's in people adopting God's word, not me. There's a corrective aspect, the, the warning, the caution. There's a, a positive aspect, the, the proactive, positive teaching. And he's saying this, God's word, when we warn it, when we use it to warn and to teach, it changes people. But not to the ways of the world or not just the cultural norms. It's the words of God and it transforms them so that they also pick up this servant suffering. And he says the goal of it all, to present everyone mature in Christ. Now notice again, it's not just his own personal maturity. It's the maturity of the whole body. Because if your life, I'm telling you right now, if your life, even in the spiritual sense, is only about your maturity, you won't reach maturity. You'll never get there. Because by nature, you aren't stewarding, you aren't suffering, you aren't, he's going to say, toiling in a minute to mature. That word maturity means whole. It means complete. And so in Ephesians 4, he talks about attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. All there is of Christ. Not just a little sliver, not just part of it. He says, we help grow people up to who they are in Christ. To maturity, to adulthood. Now listen, I love babies. Babies are great. They're precious. They're really cute. Babies are a blessing. But Paul doesn't say his goal is to just create spiritual newborns. His goal is for people to be born again and then mature. And as cute as babies are, if an adult is still acting like a baby, it's not cute anymore. It's creepy, right? Imagine, imagine if we all came to church this morning still dressing like we did when we were babies. And we all got a diaper on. We all got the onesie with the buttons, you know. Yours got a sailboat on it. Mine's got a dinosaur on it. And that's how we're all dressing. That's not cute, guys. That's going to be really, really creepy. Yet, we can sometimes act like our, our purpose is only to create spiritual babies and then leave them that way. Or it's okay for us to stay spiritual babies ourselves. And so we come to church for decades without ever adopting God's target for our life, without ever being willing to suffer, without ever teaching anyone his word. And so listen, if you've been in church 
for a while, for a long time, but you still haven't found the joy that Paul describes, it could be that you need to mature in your faith. You need to pick up some of this servant suffering. It could be that you've picked the wrong target for your life. Because if, if my target is for other people to keep bottle feeding me and changing my diaper, listen, that's going to be comfortable. That's going to be easy. But it will not bring the joy that Paul is talking about. So Paul, he's showing us what Christian maturity looks like. It looks like from God to me for you. That is what Christian maturity looks like. And it is what brings joy. In his book, Surprised by Hope, N.T. writing, he's talking about this surprising hope and joy that he finds in understanding what the resurrection means. And he, he paints the picture of the, a new, the new meaning that God's target brings to our lives now. Of knowing what the future holds, the joy that it brings now. He says this, The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. And I would add, isn't that worth some temporary suffering, some temporary afflictions to know that we are a part of building God's kingdom? But if we're going to do that, The last part is vitally important for us to remember. He says in verse 29, I toil and struggle with his energy. This word toil, it's a hard word. It makes me tired just reading the definition of it. It means agony, exhaustion, extreme labor. It's used often of athletic competition. So you you can picture a, a runner straining with all he has for the finish line. What Paul's telling us here is it is more straining It requires more strain than you can provide on your own. You can't do it. That's why Paul says it takes his energy. No human being will naturally do this on on their own, which means to the extent this happens in our lives, men and women, it is a miracle. It is Christ in you. It is the Holy Spirit at work in you. But sometimes it takes trust in that Holy Spirit. You know, a few Christmases ago, my, some of my nephews got uh, some hoverboards. Have you seen these? You kind of stand on them and, you know, you just kind of lean. They go and, um, you know, you probably go to the mall and see some kids zimming around and they probably annoy you. But kids love them. They're a lot of fun because the, the promise of this hoverboard is that it's got its own motor in it and it can go faster than you can. And so the goal is you want to go with its energy, not your energy. In fact, you can just be standing there, and it's, do, it's going for you and doing better than you could ever do on your own. Well, my brother-in-law, you know, he saw his kid, little kid zipping along, and as many parents have done, decided he wanted, he said, that looks great. I want to give it a try. It looks fun. But he soon found out it's a, it's a risky proposition. 
I thought I had a video of him falling. I couldn't find it. I don't have a video. You see, in order for that hoverboard, in order to get its energy to kick in, you got to lean forward. And that leaning forward is a risky proposition because you might fall. And the first few times you will fall. It will involve some suffering as you learn to depend on it. But you know what you can do to stay safe? You can just stand on that hoverboard all day long with no risk, but not go anywhere. Never kick in its energy and its power at work for you. The power of the Holy Spirit is experienced in life when we lean forward, when we risk falling. That is why it is called faith. And the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. You have to commit to the toil to experience his energy. But it's so worth it. It is so worth it. Have you ever seen some kid blazing by on a hoverboard? It looks fun. And I promise you, no kid who's ever learned how to go on that hoverboard would ever go back. So have you ever stopped and thought this morning, what in your life is so important, so valuable, that it's worth taking that risk for? It's even worth suffering for. Whatever that is, you have just found the target for your life. You have found the target you are aiming your life at. Now, the question for you this morning is, is it the right target? Will it actually bring joy? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.